0: The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Second week of Advent are turning together to the book of Revelation and chapter 4. So I'd like to encourage you to grab your Bible there at home and follow along with me as we hear both Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, both chapters this morning we're taking on quite a bit, but uh, as you're turning there, uh, I want to remind you of uh, an experience, perhaps, uh, if you have uh, traveled on an airplane, maybe it's been a while since you've been on an airplane, but nevertheless, um, we know the experience, uh, not so much usually when you board the plane, but rather when you get off, that you have usually a, a view of the cockpit as the, the door is open, and as you're leaving the plane and about to, to turn to get on to the, the way to get off the plane, you can see into the cockpit. You can see all those command center controls and knobs and buttons and switches and all the rest, and you see the pilots up there. Maybe, maybe you've seen uh, sometimes how a flight attendant will uh, bring a child uh, up to the cockpit. Uh, maybe you have been one of those children, received some little plastic wings, uh, maybe your first flight, and you got to see up there. Why is that significant? Uh, that's significant because when the plane hits some turbulence and you are in your seat and rocking around and maybe a little bit of fear strikes you, you remember that up at the front of that plane there's a cockpit. And in that cockpit are people who know what they're doing. Right? When you feel that you are in the midst of a situation over which you have no control, you think of Someone up there who knows what they're doing. Now that is really significant for our sermon text this morning. As we're looking to the book of Revelation, we want to get a glimpse in the same sense of the cockpit of heaven, the throne room of God, in which we are able to remember that as we are facing turmoil and distress, and sorrow, and angst, and all these different emotions that swirl around us, that there is someone up there who knows what they are doing. And unlike an airplane situation in which the pilot is some anonymous figure, we know who is on heaven's throne. John is going to take us there this morning in the book of Revelation. Now, remind yourself of what the book of Revelation is for. The book of Revelation is written to the first century church experiencing the weight of sorrow and suffering and persecution, wondering if the kingdom of God will endure to the end as they experience their earthly sufferings. And the revelation that is given to John is to be communication to the churches that says, Jesus Christ is the Lord of all history, is presently reigning, and will bring things to their appointed purpose. Jesus wins in the end, is the message of the book of Revelation. And as you wait for the consummation of his kingdom, you can have confidence that in the midst of your distress, he is presently reigning as well. He knows what he is doing. We need to be reminded of that. We need to have that picture in our minds that the Lord reigns. And so we are going to go in the Spirit with John into heaven and see the heavenly sanctuary, the inner courts, the throne room of God. This is a very holy section of Scripture that we're looking at this morning. Of course, as all the Bible is God's holy word, but there is something very sacred about these chapters for us. These two chapters, 4 and 5, you'll notice are really parallel to each other, which is why we're going to take them together. And I'll be pointing out the ways in which they mirror each other. But for now, uh, we, we want to see the glories of heaven's throne room. So let's pray and ask God's blessing on the Scriptures as we hear it together. Oh Lord, we are a people who are so greatly in need now. Lord, we need you. We need your word. We need your comfort and your peace. Lord, we need that reassurance that you occupy heaven's throne. Lord, we need that reassurance that that all things will be brought to their appointed end. Lord, you have a plan and you know what you're doing. And so I pray, Lord, that as we hear your scriptures, as we hear what you showed John by the Spirit, And we pray that that same Spirit might illuminate our hearts and minds, that we might hear and understand, receive, and be transformed by Your Word this morning. Lord, may Your glory descend upon us as we see what You have said. Come now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, hear the Word of God. Revelation 4 and 5. This is the Word of God. who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever, that cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you've ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne. and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of God abides forever and ever. So may He write its eternal truth on our hearts. I told you that, that this is a, a sacred portion of Scripture for sure. Because here with John, we go into the inner sanctum of heaven itself and the throne room of God to catch a vision of this infinitely glorious reality. And we need to see it. Just like a child needs to know that there's a pilot in the plane and really any passenger needs to know that there's somebody up there who knows what they are doing. I want to say to you this morning, Whoever you are, whatever age you are, whatever season of life you're in and whatever circumstances you face, you and I need to know what John is telling us by the Spirit this morning, that there is a God who reigns over all history and your life. We need to know this. What we see here in these two chapters is parallel images of the same heavenly throne room but the subjects and theme of the worship that happens there is a little different. In Revelation chapter 4, we find the glory of God, the Creator King. The glory of God, the Creator King. Look again with me at verse 2 as John says, "...at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven." with one seated upon the throne. And and maybe we should stop right there and just appreciate this reality. There is a throne in heaven and it is not empty. It is occupied. There is a God in heaven, on the throne of heaven, presently reigning. That in and of itself, dear friends, is sufficient to take away our fears and our anxieties and all the things that assail us. There is a God in heaven. Heaven's throne is not empty. It is occupied. But he goes on. He goes on with, with this description. And we said last week that the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. It's written in a form and style that presents in visual depictions, in moving color and graphic images, this glorious reality Of God. The images themselves are not meant to be immediate literal descriptions, but rather cumulative pictures. What do we see? In verse 3, John begins to put to words, or at least attempts to put to words, what he sees. He sees that God is on the throne. He has an appearance of jasper and carnelian and the appearance of an emerald, these precious stones, of course. But the, the meaning of these stones is not to say individually what each one means in and of itself, but rather to say that John is trying to find some way, some way of putting into words and visual pictures the radiance and the beauty and the majesty and the all inspiring breathtaking nature of the glory of God. The one who shines from heaven's throne with the appearance of all of these sparkling hues of the most precious stones. In verse 4, we see that there are 24 thrones that are before this one great throne that is high and lifted up, occupied by 24 elders, representative of of the glory of the church in both Old and New Testament ages, the twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve apostles, representative of all the church in every age, gathered around the throne. There there are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder surrounding the throne, reminding us of that awe-inspiring scene for the book of Exodus where Giving to Moses the law of God at Mount Sinai is flashes of lightning and booms of thunder. It reminds us of that. But this is where the law is ruled out and exercised, where God executes justice, where the law of God is upheld, heaven's throne. Still more detail at the end of verse 5. There are seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, or we could also say, the sevenfold Spirit of God. This is not to suggest that there are seven Holy Spirits, but rather the number seven is representative of the fullness, the completion, the perfection of God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, representing the fullness and completeness of God's Spirit. And there before the throne, verse 6, the sea, which is in an earthly sense, representative of turmoil. The sea roars and thunders and cannot be contained. Man is subject to the strength of the sea as it has chaos within it. The sea cannot be restrained or contained by man. And yet, here is the sea before God's throne in verse 6, as a sea of glass like crystal, which is to say that that which cannot be ruled by man on earth is ruled by God in heaven. It is calm at his feet. The most detail that we see is in verses 6 to 8, where we find these mysterious, awe inspiring, living creatures were called. They surround the throne. Now, uh, you, if you're familiar at all with some of the Old Testament uh, books, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Daniel, each of those prophets speak of this. Same vision of these living creatures. But the most complete picture is here in the book of Revelation. Now, you may be interested to know that there are several interpretations of what what these creatures are and and what they do and what they represent. There is one thought that says these are the mightiest representations of earthly creatures. The mightiest of the bird, the eagle. The mightiest of the domesticated animal, the ox. Of the, the mightiest wild animal, the lion. And the mightiest... Of all creatures, man himself, the crowning jewel of creation. This is suggesting that even the mightiest of creatures are just that. Creatures before their creator who exist to give him praise and worship. Another thought the early church has long said that another interpretation is that these four living creatures represent the four gospel writers. And in that representation, John is the eagle whose gospel account soars with theological beauty and precision, lofty thoughts, that Luke is representative of the ox, Mark as the lion who presents Jesus as the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah, and Matthew representative of the man, or sometimes in early church symbolism, the angel. The early church would use these four figures, the eagle, the ox, the lion, the man, to be pictures of the gospel accounts. Maybe you've seen artwork or have known imagery like that. Now all of that's interesting. All of it's beautiful. All of it's captivating. But why why is John shown this picture? What's the point? Here's why John sees it. And here's what the church needs to know that heaven is a place of ceaseless worship of the one who sits upon heaven's throne. For who he is and for what he does. Look at the song that the four living creatures sing. In verse 8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Heaven is a place of ceaseless worship for who God is. Notice how they praise God for who He is in His holiness, crying out thrice holy, three times, holy, holy, holy. How many times have you joined with us as we sing that beautiful hymn in this sanctuary, crying out with the four living creatures of the holiness of of our God, for who He is in His holiness and for who He is in His power. He is the Lord God Almighty. The Greek word for Almighty there is pantocrator, which is often used by earthly Caesars to suggest of their earthly might, of their earthly power. It would be a title falsely applied to any earthly ruler because there is only one Lord God Almighty for who He is in His holiness, for who He is in His power, for who He is in His eternality. He lives forever as they cry out, who was and who is and who is to come. This God, this glorious Lord God Almighty. Now there's a story and it's always told and whether or not it's true, its emphasis and and implication have been carried out throughout history When Handel's Messiah was first performed in London in 1743 in the presence of King George II, during the great hallelujah chorus in which heaven's throne room is recounting the hallelujahs of God, it is said that the king famously rose from his seat and bowed his head in the presence of these glorious hallelujahs of the Lord who sits upon the throne. And when the king stands, everybody stands. Whether that's a true story or not, when you go to a performance of Handel's Messiah, everybody stands during the Hallelujah Chorus. Why? Because when you are in the presence of the majesty of God, even such glorious songs about the majesty of God, you recognize that this God is your King and He is the King of Kings, which is what King George was saying That King George was a king who recognized that there is a greater king. Earthly kingdoms will fall and pass away. The kingdom of God remains and this is the great king. Heaven praises God for who He is and His holiness and His power and His eternality. But the main emphasis in chapter 4 is that God is praised in heaven for what He does. Look at verse 11 where they sing, Worthy are you our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Chapter 4 focuses on heaven's worship of God the Almighty as Creator. And the point of emphasis is this, that the purpose of the existence of the universe is to worship God. And that means the purpose of your life. The reason why you exist, no matter who you are. The ultimate reason why you exist is to worship this God. Do you worship Him? Will you continue to worship Him? All creation exists to worship the Lord God Almighty. You and I are made to bow down. And if this is true of the worship of heaven, then that means it should characterize the worship of the church on earth. I hope you understand that's why our philosophy of ministry, the way we do things at this church, the reason why we do things the way we do it is because we believe that God is worthy to receive our worship. Not some trite form of banality and playing around and kidding and joking, but the worship of the Almighty God. That doesn't mean there's not joy and delight in the presence of God, but it is to mean that we don't approach God with frivolous foolishness, childlike behavior, but rather honor, respect in the presence of God that matters. You and I are made to bow down and our worship is focused on the eternal God Chapter 4 says we should worship God for His glory and creation. But what chapter 5 tells us is more. There we worship the glory of Christ, the conquering the land. We've got another scene here, another heavenly scene This scene begins with a crisis though as John experiences a crisis moment. John sees a scroll in the hands of the Almighty covered in writing but is sealed shut. And an angel asks for someone worthy to open the scroll and break its seal but there's no one. There is no one who is worthy to take the scroll from the Almighty, not in heaven or earth or under the earth. No one can open the scroll. And so John weeps. John is undone in the presence of this reality. Why? Because John knows what that scroll is in the hand of the Almighty. What is it? It is the script of the great drama of human history, it is all existence told and written down the master plan of God for the salvation of sinners and the overthrow of the devil and the kingdom of evil. It is the scroll of divine decree, the script that contains the drama of all existence. But if it's not opened, and if it's not read, then how can that salvation come to pass? How can history reach its conclusion if the master plan of salvation is not revealed, God's purposes will fail, which is why John is devastated because it seems that history is moving towards a conclusion in which there is no conclusion whatsoever, no plot line, no direction for our lives. How many people think that that's true, that life is meaningless and has no purpose or appointed end? People think that. And John is faced with that prospect and weeps. Because no one in the entire universe was coming forward to answer the call of the angel, break the seal, and open the scrolls. And you know what? Human beings have tried and continue to try to bring about their own salvation, but you cannot open the scroll. No one except one. You see in chapter 5 and verse 5, an elder, an elder representative comes to John comes alongside of him to say, weep no more. This is a beautiful depiction of the ministry of elders, by the way. Encouraging us to fix our eyes, saying in verse 5, Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Lift your head, look up, and see. The line of the tribe of Judah, echoing Jacob's blessing language from Genesis 49. The scepter shall not depart from the tribe of Judah. He is called the Root of David. The prophet Isaiah used this language. Jeremiah, Zechariah, that the Savior, the Messiah, is a descendant of David. These are royal titles for God's Messiah. Who is He? He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the One who conquers... And so John looks and he sees in verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is the conquering lion and the slain lamb of God no longer slain but alive forevermore and standing The conquering lion is the slain lamb. Who is this, of course? The Lord Jesus Himself. And these incredible depictions that Jesus experiences victory through death, that the slaughtered sacrifice now stands, no longer dead, alive forevermore. John says, behold, a lamb. What will it be like to fix your gaze upon Christ in heaven? Have you wondered? Think about Jesus. What would it be like to set your gaze upon Him? To see His glorified wounds that bought your salvation and bore your sins? To see Him there thinking that He has died for me that I might live. That I owe my life to His wounds. How captivating will that sight be to fix your gaze upon the glorified body of our Lord Jesus there as the Lion and the Lamb. This description here in verses 6 and 7. Seven horns, seven eyes. The horns are representative of a symbol of strength that Jesus has supreme worthiness, supreme strength, supreme reception of all praise. His seven eyes are representative of His piercing omniscience. He sees and therefore He knows perfectly. The horns and the eyes tell us that this Lamb... Once a humble symbol of suffering and sacrifice, in glory is the conquering Lamb, all power, all knowledge, everything. He is the author of salvation. He is the one alone who is worthy to take the scroll from God the Father and open it. He is the only one who is worthy. Verse 7, And He went and took the scroll from the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne. And do you see the response? The Lamb takes the scroll from the Lord God Almighty's hand and praise erupts. And do you see the description in verse 9? It's a new song. It's a new song in heaven. And like rippling concentric circles, That move outward and increase. Verses eight through 14 is the praise of the conquering Lamb. Jesus takes the scroll and then the first of the 24 elders, they fall down in worship. They offer up incense, which is a symbol of the church's prayers, representing the church because the elders are there before the throne praying and interceding and coming before the throne. And they sing this amazing hymn of praise in verse 9. Worthy are you! There is none other, but you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. You, Lord Jesus, were slain. And by your blood, Lord Jesus, you have ransomed us for God. People from every tribe and language and people and nation. And as they begin their song, this tidal wave of praise echoes forth. Then to the four living creatures who take up the hymn with them in verse 11, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. A countless army of angels, thousands of thousands are swept up in the chorus. And then as the tidal wave expands to its widest possible reach, every single creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth all join in to this echoing praise. To Him, to Christ, to the Lord Jesus, to him who sits on the throne and the Lamb be a blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And they shout, "Amen and fall down in worship. What a scene! What a scene. What does it mean? What is the point? I want to say it means at least two things to us this morning. First, immediately, it's simply this. That you, whoever you are, again, and whatever your circumstance and situation in life, whatever station you find yourself in, what you must do is behold and bow down. It's what you were made for. Your life will not find its purpose until it is found in the worship of Christ. Worship Him. Bow down. But then secondly, in this Advent season when we're trying to connect between the first and second coming of Christ, and to see Christ as the triumphant One, not just as the humble babe in Bethlehem, we can still go there in our mind, can't we? We can go there in that scene of which we are so familiar, of which we have heard and sung about and thought about, to hear from Luke 2.14 the praise that is sung in the hearing of the shepherds. Right? Right? The angels appear and sing, Glory to God in the highest. Where have they been? They've come to earth to say to the shepherds, What you can't possibly know is that right now, God is there. And we have come from that heavenly throne to say to you that a Savior is going to come. And indeed, He has come. And the coming of this Savior will bring about the glory of God and peace to you. And then when we see in Matthew 2.11, Babylonian astrologers, wise men, coming to fall down, Before a baby, it might seem on the surface confounding and senseless, bowing down before a baby, but nothing could make more sense. Why? Because of who that baby is and what He has come to do in the fulfillment of the scroll which He alone opens. The glorious Christ bow down and worship Him. That's what Christmas is, and that's what it's for, God's gift and provision of His Son, that the scroll might be opened and you and I, the benefactors of the great grace and mercy and love of Jesus. Dear friends, worship Him, give Him praise, and bow down before His heavenly throne. Let us pray. Lord, we give to you honor and we give to you praise. We add our humble and meek voices to the infinite echoes of eternal praise of Jesus Christ and say, Lord, may our hearts be more sincere as we put the name of Jesus upon our lips and call Him our Savior. We thank you that He has come to us, that we might with the Magi and all creation worship Him We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.